Would you consider yourself a grace type of person? Or would you consider yourself a law type of person? What do you think about that? Which one are you? Would you say, hey, I'm very gracious, and I would think you know, grace kind of drives my life and drives my personality, and I am very just, I'm a grace type person. Or would you say, no, I'm all law. Very law. Everything's black and white, rules to me. I am law, 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 law. Which one, do you, do you know which one you are? Right. Now, let's, let's, let's check and see if you're honest. If you brought someone with you, tell them what you think that you are right now, and then look at, the, look at their faces and just see what they, see what they do. So do that right now. And you're welcome. I just started an argument for you. So <laughs> you're a liar and you're lying in church. I'm just kidding. But like, hey, you know, one way to check uh, if, if you're married and if you got kids, one way to know if you're a grace person, like you're kind of a grace driven person is, uh, is by answering this. When the kids want something, who do they go to? They're like, they never come to me. There's your answer. <laughs> there, there's your answer right there. Oh, well. Anyway, well, today we're continuing our journey, our study through the book of Romans. If you've missed any of it, you can go back. And uh, today our text, our, our author, his name is Paul, he's going to use an illustration. He's going to be talking about grace, and he's going to be talking about law, and he's going to use marriage as an illustration. Uh, and, and the reason why is because we can kind of look at ourselves. We may be more law-ish because we're married to the law. We may be more grace ish if we are married to grace. Now you may be wondering, well, how do I know if I'm law-ish or grace-ish? How do I know if I'm married to the law or married to grace? Like what does that even look like and why is Paul even talking about marriage? Uh, well, that's what we're going to look at today. So if you've got a Bible, go to Romans chapter 7. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we say this each week at Grace Point Church, you're going to need a Bible here. We lead, teach, and preach from the Bible. And so we want you to have one. If you do not own a Bible, we have those in English and Spanish here at these front tables. Also at Center Point, please stop by uh, that's our gift to you. And also, if you have a smartphone, you can download version and on there, uh, click Grace Point Vegas, and all the stuff will pop up there. We're going to be in Romans 7. Uh, Romans 7 is a massive transition in Paul's line of thought and reason to the church in Rome and us as well, uh, getting us, of course, to chapter 8. And so there's going to be a big transitioning here. We're going to be introduced in chapter 8 to uh, what is life under the Spirit, by the Spirit, guided by and empowered by the Spirit looks like. Uh, so what we must do first is we must make sure that we're not under the law and what he's going to talk about today. And my hope is today is that we will marvel at the grace of God and all that Christ has done for us, to us, and through us. And my hope is today is that we will float out of here because of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And by that grace, it will not only change our life and our disposition, but it will also just change uh, our relationships as well. So that's, that's what I want to do today. Okay, sound good? All right, let's do it. Romans chapter 7, verse 1. Are you there? Yes. Okay, here we go. He says, Or do you not know, brothers? And he starts using the brother, very familiar terms right there. Do you not know, brothers? For I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. So Paul's like, hey, you guys know the truth. And if we remember a little bit of the context, he's talking to two kind of types of people within the church. There were people who were Jewish who converted to Jesus, and there were people who were Greek Gentiles who converted to Jesus. And he's like, hey, you all know the law. And I think to the Jewish people, he's saying, you know the law of God, the Old Testament. I also think to the, G the, the, the Gentiles and the Greeks there uh, that they kind of know the law of the land. They know how contracts work. 
And a contract is binding until you die. That's what Paul's kind of setting us up right there, that you are in this relationship until you die. And so if you die, then you are out of it. So you will no longer have to pay T-Mobile your monthly amount because you are dead. We get that, right? It's like you're in a, in a contractual or almost covenantal relationship till death do you part. Now, when I say till death do you part, what does it make you think of? Marriage. Verse 2. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. And so Paul's making a very simple yet profound application here. When a man and woman marry, they are united for life till death do they part. Um, You've probably heard of the guy by the name of Billy Graham, right? Billy Graham, one of the greatest evangelists of all times, told lots and lots of people about Jesus. A lot of people came to know Jesus through Billy Graham. Well, anyway, one day someone asked his wife, his wife's name was Ruth, they said, hey, Ruth, have you ever thought about divorcing Billy Graham? And she said this, no, never divorce. Murder, yes. Divorce, no. Some of you give a hearty, amen. No. But Paul is using an illustration of marriage here. So, um, what, what do we know about marriage? Because I think it's, it's good to kind of walk through that. What are, what are some things that, uh, when you think about marriage, what are some things that pop in your mind? Go, bring them at me. Commitment. Commitment. What else? Be nice. Hard. Hard. Amen. Amen. Pa- did you say painful? Faithful. 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 Painful and faithful both. Yes. What else? <laughs> yeah. 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 What is it? What? Compromise. Compromise. Yeah. What else? Somebody's been married for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. Huh? Laundry, yeah. Mm-hmm. There's lots of that. <laughs> well, let, let, me, let me help us with this. Um, well, think about it. Marriage is very unique. Marriage is covenantal. It's a, the only place in the Bible where we see that two people become one. Uh, marriage changes us. Uh, this may be news to you, but when you are married, you are no longer single. You are interdependent upon one another. Uh, marriage costs you, meaning, I heard someone say compromise. You're going to have to give up of self sometimes for the sake of your spouse and for the sake of your marriage. Uh, marriage is to make you more like Jesus. Can I say that one more time? Marriage is to make you more like Jesus. It's where God uses uh, one another for the sanctification process. Marriage can be fruitful. It is a place where we can have uh, children from. Uh, marriage is holistic. You can't just be married on paper. Uh, You are married in all ways. You're married in your heart. You're married in your life. You're married in your wallet. You're married in your home. You're married holistically, uh, and marriages are very unique. No uh, marriage is like another marriage. Am I right? Sometimes we want to look at other marriages and compare them with ours, and then we either win or lose on that one, and like, oh, but every marriage is different. Now, When you think about your marriage, if you are married, and if you're not married, think about what you want your future marriage to be like. And when you think about your current marriage, would it be, don't answer out loud, would you consider it uh, grace-based or law-driven? Which one is it? When it comes to your marriage or when you look at marriage, do you see marriage as a good thing or not a good thing? Do you see uh, marriage as a good experience or not a good experience? When you think about marriage, what makes marriage a good one? What does it depend upon? And I've got the answer for you. What does it depend upon your marriage being good? Two things. You and them. 
Let's pray. Just kidding. <laughs> I mean, think about it. Let's be honest, though. Marriages at times can go through rough periods, and uh, when your marriage goes through a rough trial, uh, nothing could be more painful. And unfortunately, at times, marriage can lead to divorce. Maybe some of you here have experienced divorce, or maybe some of you here are children of divorced families. It's always hard and it's always painful. John Stott said this about it. I think he's right. He says, there is almost no unhappiness so poignant as the unhappiness of an unhappy marriage, and almost no tragedy so great as the de degeneration of what God meant for love and fulfillment into a non-relationship of bitterness, discord, despair. So I know right now you have a burning question, and the burning question that you have right now in your mind is coming from verse 3. Verse 3 says, accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive, but if her husband dies, she is free from that law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. And so in this text right here, if you have been previously married, or if you are married now and your spouse, your ex-spouse is still alive, but yet you married to someone else, what is the Bible saying about you? This is the, this is the question you want answered, am I right? I'm not going to answer it. It's not because I'm afraid to answer it, because I mean, if you've been around Grace Point in church long enough, I don't mind saying really hard things. No, I'm not afraid of it at all, but here's the reason why I'm not going to answer it. Uh, I would be doing this text disservice, because it's not Paul's point. Paul's point is not about this situation. And I would also be doing you a disservice, because if I were to take two or three minutes and explain this, uh, it would not be enough, and it would probably leave you with even more questions. This is something that needs about 30 to 40 minutes to suss out, and it needs to be in the proper context of the text from the Bible. But I will do you a solid. I'm going to put some text up on the screen. You'll see Matthew 19, 1 through 12. You'll see also Mark 10, 1 through 12. Luke 16, 18. 1 Corinthians 7, 10 through 11. Uh, you see those texts right there. Those will be great for you to study this week. Also, I've preached on these things previously. And so if you email me, I'm ty, T-Y, at gracepointvegas.com or elders at gracepointvegas.com. If you want to talk to someone or if you want me to send you uh, a link to the previous messages, we can do that. But I just want to make sure uh, you, you, you can go study this as well. This would be good for you to do. But here's Paul's point to the, in the text. We are all married to the law. We are under the law, and we are bound to the law. Now, my question is, earlier I said, what makes a good marriage? And it takes two people, you and them. Well, if we're married to the law, what do we know about them being the law? The law is perfect. So the problem with our marriage to the law is not the law, is it? Who, who, who's got the problem when it comes to being married to the law? Who's, who's the problem in the marriage? Who? You. <laughs> Me. Us. You see, what Paul has said up to this point in this letter, leading us to this point, is that we all, in our first birth, every human being is under Adam. Remember Adam and Eve from the Bible. For Adam, we are under Adam. We are in Adam. And as we keep looking through what Paul said previous, he said, since we are in Adam, we live under the rule of sin and death. And that is bad. And it leads to disobedience. And it leads to, to, to death in this life and the next life as well. And then he's also been connecting to law to Adam as well, that we're under the law, and that leads us to death as well. So it's like we're married in this marriage that's really, really bad, and we are the problem, not the law. The law is perfect. Now, imagine, imagine if you will, what it would be really like to be married to the law. Imagine practically if you right now, the law was in, uh, personified, and you were married to the law. Imagine what that marriage would look like. Let me help you. 
In that marriage, perfection is demanded. Your spouse would always be looking at you, demanding you to be perfect. Uh, in that marriage, there would be no request. Like in a good marriage, you request things. Like, hey, would you mind to do this? Or, hey, would you take care of this? There's requests. But in a marriage to the law, it's all demands all the time. There are rules to follow, and you must do every rule to the fullest. You must cross every T, you must dot every I, and every morning when you wake up, there's another list, list after list after list waiting on you to do this and don't do this, do this and don't do that. Everything is under the watchful eye of, of your, your spouse, the law, and everything is controlled. There are threats of punishment when failure happens, and, and there is this impossible expectation of you just always doing the right thing and being perfect. How's that sound? For some of you, like, you just described my marriage. <laughs> hey, if, seriously, if that's you, like, hey, uh, shoot us an email. Come see us. You, you, need, you need to talk to someone. You need to kind of work that out. Some of you are like, that describes my previous marriage. That's why I'm not in it any longer. But uh, being married to the law sounds relentless, a burden, a treadmill that you're always running on, getting nowhere and just ending it up exhausted, a heavy burden. There's a scene in the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, you see the, the early church begin, and you see these Jewish people getting saved uh, and coming to know Jesus, and you see the, the Greek and the Gentile getting saved and coming to know Jesus. And when you get to Acts chapter 15, it's called the Council of Jerusalem. And they're all sitting there, and they're trying to figure out, like, hey, what laws do we put on these Gentile people who have no laws uh, to, to be a Christian? Do, we, do they need to become Jewish to become a Christian? And they're like, well, I, I don't think that's the right thing. And then Peter speaks up, and Peter says this in Acts 15.10. Hear this. He says, now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke? You know what a yoke is, right? Not the thing in the egg. A yoke is like a farming thing. It's like what you would put on an animal's back for them to pull a plow or some type of farming machinery. And it would be heavy, and it would be exhausting, and it would be bad. He says, God, uh, are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. What is the yoke in this text? Say it again. The law. The law. He's like, hey, look at the Old Testament. None of them could like bear this weight. It was, it was a burden to them as well. It weighed them down. Why do you think we should put this on the disciples now? Pause. Disciple, Christian, is that what it feels like to follow Jesus? That Jesus is just a huge burden. That Jesus is just a huge weight. That there's just drudgery and pain. And is that, is that what it feels like for you to follow Jesus? If it is, brother and sister, listen to me, listen to me. Respectfully, I say this. You're doing it all wrong. You, have a, you, you don't have a right view of Jesus. If it just feels like Jesus is just one massive weight on my life and just this heavy burden and my life is miserable because of Jesus, that this is, in all due respect, you got it wrong. And, and I, I hope today we can get it right. Look at verse 4, Romans 7, 4. He says, likewise, my brothers, you also have died. Can you hear that? You have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you belong to another. Amen. Meaning you, you, you just got a new spouse. You belong to another to him. Who's the him in the text? Jesus. You belong to him, Jesus, who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. And there it is. What Paul's been saying over and over and over, that you, if you're in Christ, you, if you've been born again, you, if you are a Christian, you have died. You're no longer in Adam. You're no longer under the reign of sin. 
You're no longer under the law. Why? A death has happened. You died. The marriage has been dissolved by death. Death did we part. And if you're born again, if you're a Christian, then you are now married to grace. And grace embodied as Jesus. You are married to Christ and the Messiah. This is the good news. And I want you to listen to his yoke. Uh, Matthew 11, one of my favorite texts, says this. Jesus says this. Come to me. Come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden. Are you laboring? Does life feel like a burden? He says, come to me and I will give you rest. Take my yoke. He said, yeah, I'll put a yoke on you. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lonely in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Which one do you want? The law is promising you a heavy burden that you can never carry or Jesus is promising you a light burden, a gracious burden, a gentle and lowly burden that is easy. Which one do you want? Are you awake? Does the rain have you lulled into a sleep? You want grace, right? Amen. Yes. Now go back to our text. Look at verse 4. I want you to notice who died. He's like, likewise, my brothers, you also have died. Stop. Remember the, the marriage illustration? The marriage illustration, the spouse died. But in this right here, he's bringing it to us. He says, no, no, no. The spouse didn't die. The law didn't die. The law is still alive. Who died? You and me, we died. We have died. Our marriage to the law is over because we have died. The law no longer has dominion over us in the way it did before we died. We died in Christ, and in Christ it was fulfilled. Now, how did this happen? How did this happen? Look, look back at the text. It says right here, to the law through the body of Christ. So we died to the law through the body of Christ. What does it mean when he says through the body of Christ? It does not mean the church. Sometimes when you see the New Testament, it says the body of Christ. And we typically, when we read that, it means the body of Christ, the church, right? In this text, it means Jesus' own body. What's it talking about? The cross. It's when Jesus died on the cross, it was like we were with him. And so what is true of him is now true of us. And so what Jesus did, he came and he fulfilled the law. He was under the law and fulfilled it perfectly. Jesus not once ever did he sin against the law. As a matter of fact, he fulfilled the law and then he goes and dies on the cross as one of us, as a sinner. And so it was like we were with him there. And so now we have died in Christ. That's why when we do baptism, it's so important. It's like we're identifying with Jesus in baptism. It's like we have died. It's like when he died on the cross, we were with him. And now we are, we are free from the law because Jesus fulfilled it and we died with him. See, when you look at Paul's writing through here, he connects sin and the law together and almost makes them like identical. It's like Jesus died for our sin and Jesus fulfilled the law. It's, we're, we're free from sin and the law. That's Paul's whole argument, both signified through uh, participation in the death of Christ, the law's curse of condemnation of sin has been taken away. And now we are now married to Jesus. Which don't make that weird. Don't make that weird. It's just like we're just married to Jesus. It's like we have this special union with Jesus. And like this has life-changing effects on us right now. I, I want you to think about your marriage to Jesus like your marriage. And then so like some of you are like, well, I'm not married. Um, do you have a marriage in your mind? You're like, hey, I've seen this other people's marriage and I really like that marriage. You got somebody in mind if you're not married? Give you a little nod. Like, hey, I, I, I'm not married, but I know this person's marriage and I really like this marriage. Okay, think about your marriage. Your marriage 
is not being lived by rule books, right? Like you don't have a marriage manual at home and you open it up every few days to make sure that you're doing marriage the right way. Like I'm married to Angie. We've been married. Gosh, how long have we been married now? 28 years? 29 years? It's like we were, we were like just married as kids, right? <laughs> kind of were. Uh, but our marriage is not dominated by rules. Uh, Angie does not get up in the morning and make a set of rules for me to follow, and I nor, uh, nor do I get up in the morning and make a set of rules for her to follow at all. We don't do that. Why? Because our marriage is dominated by the relationship. It's dominated by love. Now, when you love someone, when it's dominated by love, you have standards and principles that you're going to live by, and that's what it means to live under the reign of grace because you're being ruled by grace and ruled by love. Now, you may be saying, well, if you're ruled by grace, you can do whatever you want to. Not at all. Like Just because Angie and I are under grace doesn't mean we want to go cheat on each other and we want to go smoke crack and we want to go like watch Fast and the Furious movies or anything like that. No, <laughs> not at all. But you're free to do that because you live under grace. Yeah, I guess we're free to do that. I'm not going to do that, baby. But I guess we're free to do that. But guess what? I don't want to do that. Amen. Why? Because of the relationship, because of the love. And I'm not bound by any laws in that matter. Now think about it for yourself, Christian, when it comes to uh, being in Christ. If you live by grace, does that mean that you can just do whatever you want to do? Does that mean that you can go out and sin all that you want to sin? And the answer is no. Why? Because of your love of Christ. You love Jesus now. And your greatest pleasure is to fulfill his, his greatest desires. And your greatest joy is when you know that you're honoring him with your life. Am I right? Amen. It's the same thing in marriage. Like, like it brings great joy when I know like Angie's happy. And these are the things that she loves. It's the same way with our relationship with Christ. It's, it actually is this. It's a joy to lay down my singleness. It's, it's a joy to lay down my autonomy. It's a joy to lay down what I want. You know why? Because what, what is best for the marriage and what is best for our relationship? And what is best for love? It's the same way when we follow Jesus. It's easier to give up our sinfulness. It's easier to give up our selfishness. Why? Because we want to please the one we love. Does that make sense? That's what he's talking about. Verse 4, he says, Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another. You belong to him to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit. There should be fruit from the relationship. Imagine if what I'm getting ready to read to you described your life, described how you lived, described your relationships, and described your, your marriage. Galatians 5, 22 through 23. Imagine this being your marriage. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. What if just in your marriage, it's just you would say, hey, the fruit of our marriage is just love and joy. Like, we actually like being together. Could you imagine that in your marriage? Like, we, you want to be together. And peace, no, no longer just warring against one another and lobbing comments over to one another and like, can't stand to be in the same room. No, there's peace and patience. Anyone need a little patience in their marriage? Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, knowing that you're going to be faithful to one another gentleness. Gentlemen, gentle. Ladies, gentle. Gentleness. Self-control. Now watch what Paul says. Against such things there is, what's it say? Why do we need law? We, we, it, do you see what he's getting at? We, we don't need the law anymore. 
We don't need to be governed by the law. Why we're governed by something completely different? We're governed by the relationship. Being married to grace is beautiful. Being married to law is not. Being married to the law is like being married to the HOA. <laughs> and if you, if you work for the HOA in here, hey, you're just doing your job. I love you. It's all good. But your marriage feels like just someone always pointing out the problems. There's the weeds in our marriage, and there's the garbage in our marriage. And you're like, here's a full-colored picture to let you know, that, hey, you've done this. That, that does not sound fun. Verse 5 in Romans 7. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. So when we live under grace, we're bearing, we're bearing fruit for life. And he says right here, when you live under the flesh, he said, under the law, you bear fruit for death. Um, it's almost like you're just working to manufacture fruit. You're striving your life. And when we live under the law, we're striving to do it right. We're striving to at least appear like we're doing the right. And we're just working and striving, working and striving. And can I tell you what you get when you work and strive under the law? Can I, can I show you? Galatians 5.19. This is what it's like to live under law. It says, now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warned you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Hey, which one do you want? Law or grace? Which one do you want? Because we will work under the law. This is what we are going to produce. And it produces not death, but life. Or not life, but death. Look at verse 6, back to Romans 7. He says, but now we are released from the law. No longer married. Having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. And when he says the written code, he's talking about the law. I love how Paul's going to start introducing the spirit, the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. And when we get to uh, chapter eight, you're really going to see the spirit's involvement in our lives and the life of a Christian as well. But he's kind of getting us ready for that. So the new age is essentially the age of the spirit in which the Holy Spirit writes God's laws on our heart. The Holy Spirit governs us. We no longer have to be governed by the law. You're hearing that, you're probably thinking, well, well, are we not bound by the law anymore? Do we not have to obey the law anymore? And my answer is yes and no. Yes, uh, the sense is that Christian freedom is freedom to serve, is what the text says, not to sin. So the law helps guide us in that. Um, we're, free, we're, we're free from the law, but we're not free to be lawless. So I think, yes, the law is still important in our lives. Um, but no, we're not trying to keep the law to be right with God. Can I say that one more time? We're not trying to keep the law to make God happy with us. We're not trying to keep the law to make God love us. We're not trying to keep the law in order to be saved. He says here that we serve in a new way. The serving in is a new way is we, we start to live by the Spirit of God, and we listen and in tune to how the Spirit leads us, leading us into the Word of God and leading us by the laws, governing and guiding us completely different way of life. Now, Paul's getting ready to make a big transition that's going to make a big difference next week, but I need to talk about it right now. Paul, in the next verse, verse 7, is going to say, I. And when we read Paul saying, I, we need to know who he's talking about because perhaps part of it, sometimes he is talking about self, but then sometimes he's not talking about self. He's kind of setting up a, a caricature or, or somebody else. 
And the question we need to ask this week and especially next week is, who's Paul talking about when he says I? Well, part of the time it can be him talking about himself. Part of the time perhaps he's talking about Adam, like Adam and Eve from from the past. Part of the time he could be talking about um, Israel, I think a little bit as well. Part of the time he could be talking about Gentile converts, specifically before their life. And the big question that most commentators have, um, they've spilled a lot of ink on, is Paul talking to Christians? Most will say maybe, some will say yes, some will say no. And you're probably thinking right now, like, Ty, I could care less about any of that nerdy stuff. You're going to need to care about it. Because the next section, probably, probably, if you've been in church, you've heard of this. I do the things I do not want to do. That way I do the things I ought not. You remember that section? That's coming, and it's going to be super important to know who he's talking about. So with that said, Did I confuse you in verse 7? Okay, verse 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? Is the law sin? By no means. Yet, if if it had not been for the law, I would have not known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Question. Is there anything wrong with God's law? Answer. We've said it a thousand times. No. But there's something wrong with humanity. What the law is doing, the law is pointing out our sins. So here's our first I in this text. I think this first I that Paul's talking about is himself. I think, I might be wrong, but I think he's getting very vulnerable with the church of Rome there and us as well. And I think he's talking about himself that he felt the sin of, 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 of coveting. I, I think he, like, he, he might have struggled with that. That might have been his... Um, it might have been his like besetting sin. When he's talking about coveting, what does it remind us of of the Old Testament? Ten Commandments, okay? And so um, it reminds us of the Ten Commandments. Now, if we were to be Pharisees or if we were to be legalists, uh, we could read the Ten Commandments and see it as externally only. And if you read the Ten Commandments and go through it as an external sin only, meaning not don't think about your heart, actually kind of remove what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount about like uh, uh, murder being like hate and adultery being like lust. Remove all that from your, your mind right now. Imagine if you were to read the Ten Commandments only as external, we could probably do really good at it, am I right? Let's try it. Uh, go to Exodus 20. I want you to see Paul's perspective as a legalist or Paul's perspective as a Pharisee. Maybe we're reading this as a Pharisee would read this, okay? Are you ready? Verse 3, chapter 20 of Exodus. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, if you're a Pharisee, you're like, yes, right, I only worship the one true God. So check that one off. I have no other gods. I'm doing great. I'm perfect. Verse 4. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath and that is in the waters under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquities of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So commandment two is don't make any little carved trinketry or anything like that and bow down to them, right? So next time you go, is Pier 1 still a thing? Or Home Goods Store? Like, don't buy those little Buddhas. If you've got those little Buddhas in your house, as your pastor, I would say, get those out. I would. Uh, but like, you know, but if you're a, a legalist, if you're a Pharisee, you're like, hey, I've not made any little trinkets. I'm not bowing down to anything. I don't have a Dallas Cowboys jersey in my closet anymore with candles lit and worshiping that, trying to get them to be winners, which will never happen. I'm not doing that. <laughs> I'm not doing that at all. Why? 
Number seven, verse seven. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Does that mean I said a bad word? Does that mean I blaspheme God? I think it's a little bit of both. But if you're a Pharisee or you're legalist, you're like, never from these lips, and so I'm good to go. Verse eight, remember the Sabbath day. Keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your sons or your daughters, your male servants, female servants, livestock or sojourner who is within your guest gates. And so you would say, hey, uh, I always take a day off and I always take that day and honor the Lord. And so check that one off as well. I'm perfect so far. And then verse 12, uh, the parents' favorite verse, memory verse for life. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. And all the parents in the room said, but as a kid, you were not saying that at all, were you? You're like, I hate that one. (laughs) Can we do some like Hebrew jujitsu on this one make sure it says something? Nope, that's what it says right there. But if you're a Pharisee, you're a legalist, you're like, hey, I've always honored my mother and father. Check. Verse 13, you shall not murder. Check. (laughs) Verse 14, you shall not commit adultery. Check. Verse 15, you shall not steal. Check. Verse 16, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Never lie against my neighbor. Check. So we're nine deep in the Ten Commandments, right? And if you're a legalist, you're a Pharisee, and you're just seeing these as external only, you're nine out of ten so far, and where I'm from, that's an A, am I right? And you're doing great. You're like, hey, I'm amazing. I'm really, really good. Verse 17, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not cover your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that's in your neighbor, that is your neighbor's. What's that mean? What's it mean to covet? want. Hmm. But coveting is not stealing, right? Like you didn't walk over and like steal your neighbor's camel because you like it better or anything like that or steal your neighbor's spouse. You, you didn't physically, you didn't externally do it. Wait, out of the 10 commandments, this one doesn't look external, does it? This, this one would have to blow a, a Pharisee, a legalist up. Why? Because it's internal. Desi- coveting is internal desires. When God uh, gave this law, I think he gave a language to our internal desire or our internal struggle with contentment. And so what Paul's saying is like, hey, I really didn't, didn't know, I didn't have language that this was an issue until God put language on it with the law. See, covetedness is internal. It's a form of idolatry because it puts the object of desire in the place of God. But thank goodness, thank goodness, we don't covet around here, am I right? Listen, our culture is set up upon coveting. Have you ever watched a commercial on television? It is saying this. Like if if you've never watched a commercial, let me tell you how they work. Here's my product. You don't have it. You're the worst. But you'll be better if you get my product and look like these people. And what do we do at home? We're like, oh my gosh, get me on Amazon.com as quick as possible because I don't want to be the worst. I need that. Oh, that's not enough proof. Let me give you some more proof. Uh, Social media. That's all social media is for. It's for coveting. It really is. You get on social media and all of a sudden you see someone's family and then you look around at your family. They got SpaghettiOs all over one another. The kids are fighting. They've ripped up the couch. The dog's barfed on the floor and they're like, their family is way better than my family. I wish I had that family, and I would trade my family for that. Or you see their spouse, and you're like, you know, like, like I like her, or I like him, or whatever noise you make when that happens. I'm like, yeah. Or you see their car, and you're like, I drive, 
you know, a piece of junk or their house or whatever it is. It is created to make you miserable. Am I right? Studies say, studies show us that the more you're on social media, the more miserable you are. Why? Because of envy. I want that. Look at that vacation they're on. I'm stuck at work today. Like whatever it is. It's, it's just, it's covetousness. Isn't it interesting? It's just funny. Uh, in, um, in, in Exodus where he talks about thou shalt not covet, he talks about uh, car, house, and spouse. Well, not car, but like camel was their mode of transportation. You kind of get it. But aren't those kind of the three things that would be easy to covet on? Car, house, and spouse. Some of you are like, I would never covet against my house. And I've been in my house for 15 years, and I love my house. And we've uh, done all kinds of upgrades on it and like all kinds of work because it was a dump when we first bought it. It was a short sale and empty, and squatters were in it and ripped out carpet holes in the walls. It was gross. And I love my house now. But you know what messes me up sometimes? Driving to Summerlin. <laughs> like, we live in a cardboard box, baby. What am I doing? Coveting. Verse 8, I don't know. <laughs> but sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Oh, that word. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. And so what he's saying is, the law is exposing what's really inside of me. Theologians would call this thing inside of us that kind of fleshy sin nature is, is uh, perversity. This idea of perversity is a, a desire to do something for no other reason than because it's forbidden. That's right. <laughs> you, you know that feeling, right? Just because someone tells you don't do that, you're like, I'm going to do that. <laughs> if I were to put a switch on the wall over there that did nothing, and I said, hey, please don't touch that switch, you'd be like, I'm going to touch that switch. And for the next 40 minutes, you'd be like, that's all you could think about. I, I got to touch the switch. The, the switch is going to get touched. Why? Because I told you not to do it. Like there's this idea that there's perversity inside of all of us of like, it brings us great joy to break the rules. It just does. Some of you rule followers are like, no, it doesn't. Like, okay, that's all I'll say about that. Verse nine, <laughs> I was once alive now, now follow this train of thought. I, Paul, was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandments came, sin, sin came alive and I died. Transition in the eyes. I don't think Paul's talking about himself right there. I was once apart from the law. That, that can't be Paul, right? Well, you remember uh, in the book of Philippians, remember uh, when Paul starts to give his like, resume? He's like, I'm, I, like I, I was... Uh, circumcised on the eighth day. I was uh, from the order of you know, a certain person. I'm a Benjamite of the Benjamite. I'm the, the Jew of the Jew. Like, uh, like he is Jew-normous. I mean, like, he's like, hey, he's, just, like, he's, all, like, from, he's never been separated from the law. I don't think this can be, I don't think this can be Paul, right? And so now I think he may be talking about Adam. Because remember a previous argument he made, he said from Adam to Moses, there was no law. Remember that? Uh, I think it's in chapter... I don't know, three, four, five, somewhere in there. So he may be talking about, nonetheless, I think he's pointing to our, our perversity. The idea that we just, we just want to break the law. Augustine said this. Augustine in his confessions described how this principle worked in his own life. He said this story. There was a pear tree near a vineyard laden with fruit. One stormy night, we rascally youth set out to rob it and carry our spoils away. We took off a huge load of pears. Not to feast upon, but to throw them to pigs, though we ate just enough to have the pleasure of forbidden fruit. They were nice pears, but it was not the pears that my wretched soul coveted, for I had plenty better pears at home. 
I picked them simply in order to become a thief. The only feast I got was a feast of iniquity, and that I enjoyed to the full. What, what, what was it that I loved in that theft? Was it the pleasure of acting against the law in order that I, a prisoner under rules, might have a maimed counterfeit of freedom by doing what was forbidden with a dim similitude of omnipotence? The desire to steal was awakened simply by the pro- prohibition of stealing. He's saying just because the law was there, I just wanted to break it. That's our problem. It's not the law. Verse 10. The very commandment that promised life provided to me death to me. For Verse 11. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. He says, I was slayed by the law. The law showed me that I was not good enough. The law showed me that every time I would try to be better and be perfect, I just couldn't do it. I never measured up. And listen, that's the point of the law. The law is to push us to Jesus. Because the law is not bad. Look what he says verse 12 again. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So one last time, is the law good or bad? Good. What's the problem with the law then? Us. And the main problem is we don't want anything above us. That's why we don't like the law. That's why we push against the law. That's why we break the law. We don't want anything in authority of us. We want to be God. And if you want to be God, then you will ultimately be, be married to the law, and the law will crush you in this life. And because you failed to keep it fully, you'll be crushed by God in the next life. Let's pray. Oh, that's terribly sad news. Am I right? There's good news. There's grace. And as a Christian... You can choose to live under grace in which God has provided for you. Amen. You no longer have to live under law. For some of you, you may be like, well, I don't know if I've been living under the law. Some of you, maybe you need a little help with, am I living under the law? Let me give you a couple of indicators that you have been living under the law. You love to judge other people by the law and not be judged by the law. That's one great indicator. And, and when you come face to face with the law, you feel guilty, but not like in conviction way, but in guilty of like this heavy burden that just makes you so miserable as a human being. And then you begin to feel shame over and over. And then you begin to have this life where you start to hide areas of your life because you know you do not keep up with the law. You break the law constantly. And so I've got to hide this. No one can find out. And then you, begin, you, be, you, you start to fake life. You just fake it until you make it, and you just fake it over and over, like trying to show everyone that you're good, that you're moral, that you're right. Listen to me. You are married to the law, and you need to be married to the grace of Jesus. Jesus has done everything on your behalf so you can be freed from that miserable life. We have a Savior that kept the law completely into its entirely. He fulfilled the law in all ways. We no longer have to keep looking at ourselves and seeing how bad we are. Now we can look to Jesus and be reminded how good he is. By the way, if you really want to see some practical life change, stop worrying so much about your sin and start looking more and more to Jesus. Start looking more and more to his kindness and to his goodness and to his perfection. It doesn't mean that you don't care about your sin. It means when you look more to him, like he'll take care of your sin. This is the good news of the gospel. See, when you're married to Jesus, he comes to you. He's still above you. He's still authority over you. But now Jesus comes beside you. It's different than the law. The law doesn't come beside you. 
He begins to walk with you throughout your life and empowering you to live out this spirit-filled life because you are now his bride. One of my favorite things to do is weddings. I love to, I've done, I'm looking around, I've done some of your weddings here. They're just an absolute joy. And and when you do a wedding, three things happen. Uh, Number one, you make vows to one another. Remember, Remember those vows? Like, I like you, I like you too, I love you, I love you too, I won't leave you, I won't leave you either. If you're sick, I'll take care of you, and like, okay, I'll take care of you too. Remember those? Like, we, we're going to be broke, I know, but I'll, I'll, I'll be in love and broke with you. Remember, remember the vows? You make vows? Uh, and, and then you, you, you sign, uh, you sign a, a license, and that's always what I forget as your pastor. I always forget to sign the license, like, ah, don't let me forget it. Uh, but you sign a license, and now you have a new legal, you have a, like a brand new legal status that you are legally married. Right? And then the third thing happens is that um, the, the wife takes the last name of the husband. Now, some of you are like, that's not progressive. I'm like, eh, it is what it is. I think it's great uh, to take the last name and assume the last name of the husband. This, those three things happen. It's a little bit similar when we're married to Jesus as well. Jesus makes vows to us. It's like he's standing there at the altar with you. And you and I would just kind of blabber a bunch of things up. I'll always be faithful. I'll always love you. He's like, no, you won't. No, you won't. (laughs) But I love you, and I'll be faithful to you, and I will never leave you, and I will never forsake you. And also, there's a legal change that uh, when when you trusted Jesus and he became your spouse, uh, that you used to be guilty before the eyes of God in the courts of God. Now you are innocent. That's the word we get of justification. You are legally declared innocent innocent because you've hitched your wagon to Jesus. And that's really good news. And then lastly, third, we take his name. We are now known as Christians. That's, that's what you are now, a Christian, which just means I am a little Christ. And uh, kicker, when, when Christ returns, when we go and meet Christ, uh, we are going to have a brand new name. What is it? I don't know, but you'll have a brand new name. This is because Jesus loves it. This is what happens in the marriage of Jesus. Before I pray, I wanna I wanna have a little uh, I wanna speak this over you and let you hear this, so you're reminded of it. So I'm just asking you now, if you wouldn't mind, just close your eyes. And I want to give you the good news of what it means to truly be married to Christ and how otherworldly and different it is than anything else. Jesus, He is the best husband. Jesus will not cheat on you. Jesus will not fall out of love with you. Jesus will not change his mind about you. Jesus will not give up on you. Jesus will never stop loving you. Jesus will never stop liking you. Jesus will not just tolerate you. Jesus will not divorce you. Jesus has the power to forgive you. Jesus has the power to change you. Jesus has the desire to walk with you. Jesus is in this forever. Father, thank you so much that Paul, inspired by you just pounding this into our heads that we are, we're dead. 
that we died with Christ, that we're no longer bound in that way under your law. We're no longer bound by sin. We're no longer bound by anything but you. That now we, we are united to you, Christ. We, we are your body, you are the head. We are your bride, you are our groom. And Jesus, you're the perfect husband, you're the best husband. And so, God, we are just so grateful for that. Would you help us, Spirit, to, to live by that grace? Would you help us to realize and stop striving and straining and struggling under the law? Would you tether our hearts more and more to your grace? May we, as Paul said, be led in this new way, led by the Spirit. So, Holy Spirit, would you, would you, would you fill us? Would you guide us? Would you enliven us? Continually give us strong and greater desires for you. Change and transform us. As you do that, God, would you just unite us as people together at this church? Would, would, would you give us a heart for one another? Would you give us a heart for you? And would you give us a heart for those outside of here that are still married to the law, working striving, straining, and struggling. Would you help us to, to, to show you off and to show you to be the better husband and to show you to be the one who can provide? Would you do that for, for the good of the world? And Jesus, would you do that for our joy? We pray in Christ's name. Amen.